Amen. Thank you, Pastor Randy. Thank you, worship ministry. I would invite you to take your copy of the Lord's Word and turn to the letter to the Galatian churches. The letter of Galatian, the Galatians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. We've been on this journey called Grace Period, and we've been walking through this incredible letter that Paul writes. The first week we talked about how the letter to the Galatian churches is unique amongst the letters of Paul. Paul comes out swinging from the gate, so to speak. He comes out pretty aggressively. He normally has a softer tone and a softer approach. But he is very concerned and gravely concerned of what he sees going on in the Galatian churches. We talked the week after that that the Galatian churches were likely either directly or indirectly started by Paul himself on his first missionary journey with Barnabas. So he's kind of like the spiritual father in a way of these churches. And we also pointed out that their main problem was that they had abandoned the gospel which is extremely telling because this is not after hundred years of compromise, hundreds of years of compromise. This is, frankly, just after months, possibly years of ministry with Paul himself, and they were abandoning the true gospel for a false gospel, to which Paul says, is no gospel at all, because there's only one. So what is this false gospel that he is dealing with? Well, there is a term that you need to understand, and it's called Judaizers. Judaizers. Well, this morning's message is titled, entitled, Judaizers and Such. Judaizers and Such. You say, well, I don't even know what a Judaizer is. Matt, it's 2024. How is this going to be helpful to me this week? Well, let me give you our main statement, and then we'll talk about it a little more. There have always been those, that is in the church, who major on the minors and in doing so miss the message. There have always been those who major on the minors and in doing so miss the message. What is a Judaizer? In the early church, these were people who had come to know Christ or professed to be a Christian, but they were coming from a place of Jewish practice of religion. These are people that had grown up in the house of Israel, amongst the people, had worshipped at synagogue, had also made pilgrimage to the temple. They knew their Old Testament. They knew all about the laws of Moses. And they knew that a Messiah was coming. Judaizers were those who had grown up in the rich tradition of the Jewish faith and were now trusting Christ as their Messiah. But the first major controversy of the church was this. Is that 
Paul's gospel, and we're going to see Paul's gospel and what made it so novel is that the good news of salvation was not just for the Jews, but that Jesus, as the Savior, was the Savior of the world, including the Gentiles. And this was a novel thought. So the first major controversy of the church, which was in its earliest form, almost exclusively Jewish Christians. And then after just a few short years, the Gentiles began believing the gospel. And now a people that formerly did not associate with Jews are now associating with Jews in this movement called the church. So the controversy arises when Paul goes out preaching the gospel to Gentiles, people who are not Jews, and telling them what it means to be to be saved. These Gentiles are coming into the church and they don't know how to act. They do not keep the traditions that the Jews keep. And this is the first major controversy. It is, can you be a Christian and not be Jewish? Now, I'm not talking about just Jewish descent. But what the Judaizers believed is that Christianity was the true fulfillment of the Old Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament and that to trust Jesus is to go back and to honor the laws of Moses. So this is what we're going to see today and this is the controversy that Paul is dealing with. So Galatians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me I went up because of a revelation. Pause, what does that mean? That means God told me to do this. And set before them, though privately, for those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. What does that mean? A Gentile. Yet because of false brothers, notice Paul's language, people saying the name of Christ but don't truly belong, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ, so that they may bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, 
when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. All right, let's talk about it. Our main statement is there have always been those who major on the minors and in doing so missed the message. Principle number one, for a Judaizer in the Christian church, for a Judaizer separating the message of grace from the requirements of the law was wrong. Here was their question. How could one be, a faithfully, how could one be faithfully Christian without being faithfully Jewish. If you're a Jewish Christian, if you were to talk to them, a Judaizer is one who places his Jewish identity above his identity in Christ. That first and foremost, he would say, I'm a Jew, and my Christianity helps me fulfill who I am as a Jew. We can take this into modern illustration. For instance, some of us, hopefully many of us, are patriotic Americans. But it becomes a problem if we say we are at our core patriotic Americans, and then after that, we are Christians. And our Christianity helps us become truly patriotic. What we've done is we have placed our nationalism or patriotism over our identity in Christ. This is what the Jews had done, except they had done it not just with nationalism, but they had done it with the laws of God in the Old Testament. What they had done is they were seeing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament so that by believing in Jesus, you go back to the Old Covenant to keep its practices. So when Paul shares the gospel with these Gentiles who know nothing of the laws of Moses, who know nothing of the festivals, who know nothing of the feasts, and they don't keep any of that stuff, and they're just coming into the church, and they're trying to do church with people who have all these rich traditions from Jewish heritage, and for them to be a good Christian is to be a good Jew, How can you possibly have fellowship with a Gentile that doesn't acknowledge any of your sacred holy days, that doesn't care anything about the laws of Moses? That clearly must be wrong. For the Judaizers had separated the message of grace from the requirements of the law, and it was wrong. There are two major covenants in the Bible. There is first the Old Covenant. This is the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. Here's what you need to understand. 
the most important event in the Jewish mind. The most important event even today, if you talk to Jews, what is the most, and I'm talking about religious Jews, what is the most defining thing for you as a people? And their answer is that God delivered us out of Egypt, bringing us through the Red Sea, baptizing us through water, and destroying our enemies in the sea and making us a free people. That is the most defining event that God took them out of Egypt, brought them through the Red Sea, took them to the wilderness, and there gave, him, gave them His holy laws. Now it's important to note, God did not give the Jews the laws so that they could earn their way to Him. No, that's frankly a mischaricature of how Christians characterize Jews. We say, oh, they just believe in work salvation. It's not that simple. No, because remember, God did not give the Jews the laws in Egypt and said, once you obey me, I'll deliver you. No, God delivered them first with a strong and a mighty hand out of Egypt. And then after he delivered them, he gave them his laws as a reality for a delivered people. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 through 18. This is the Old Covenant. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to Him, and to keep His commands, decrees, and laws, and you will live and increase. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away you, and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed and you will not live long in the land that you are crossing in the Jordan to enter and possess. What's the old covenant? The old covenant is I have delivered you. I'm taking you into the land. So keep my laws. And if you don't keep my laws, I will kick you out of the land. That's the old covenant. So for a Jew, law-keeping is so important because it's a mark. If you keep the laws of God, it is a mark that you show you truly understand that you are a Jew and a delivered person. And you are living in that rich heritage of having come from a people that was delivered out of the hand of Pharaoh. And by law-keeping, you are acknowledging the great act of salvation that God has done. Fast forward back to the New Testament. So for them, trusting in Jesus as their atoning sacrifice for sin and the one who now enables them through His righteousness to fulfill the law's demands, this makes them a complete Jew. And in doing so, they want to be more Jewish and more faithful all the more. And then comes in this Gentile eating pork jerky. And they're like, this ain't going to work. You got to do something about these people. Then there's the new covenant. The new covenant is not like the old. And it's so beautiful. 
Jeremiah chapter 31, 31 through 34 says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah and, um, and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and, and to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Let me just stop right there. It's just on the screen. Do you notice that he's saying, listen, there's a new thing I'm going to be doing and it's not like that old this new covenant is different. When I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one teach his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So here's the difference. The old covenant, they went and stood at the foot of Mount Sinai and God shouted from the mountain so loud that they said, Moses, please ask God to stop talking. He's kind of scaring us. So God stops talking and then Moses talks to him and then God takes his finger and writes on two stone tablets... And he writes down the Ten Commandments. By the way, whenever you see the two stone tablets, we often think that commandments five, one through five are on one tablet and the other one, six through ten, are on the other. In the ancient world, the two stone tablet picture would not have worked that way. It would have been two identical tablets, meaning front and back, each tablet would have the exact same writing. One tablet with all ten commandments, the other tablet with all ten commandments. And what they would do, the ancient peoples, would take one tablet and put it in the temple of the gods, and then they would take the other tablet and give it to the people, as if to say, God is going to hold these laws in preserve, and now he's given them to you and expects you to do them. What it is, it's a covenant to keep the law, and God wrote it on stone tablets. But the new covenant is different. It's not like the old this time, rather than writing laws in stone on a mountain, God is going to write His laws on human hearts. That the new covenant is different. It's not out there. It's rather in here. It's not about what you do ceremonially out here. It's about rather the, what is going on in your heart. This is what the new covenant is. Which it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Greek or anything like that. Why? Because it's not about the ceremony out here. It's about the inward reality in here. Whether or not God is at work on the inside. You see, the Galatian controversy concerns the relationships of the covenants with each other. I know this is a hard thing for some of us to understand, but if you'll track with me today this really will bless you in understanding Galatians the Galatian controversy that came up concerns the relationship of the covenants with each other it concerns the relationship of the covenants with each other the Judaizers taught that the new covenant existed to return us to the old covenant 
that God now, because He's written things on our heart, yay, now we can keep the law. Now we can go back and keep all the ceremonies. Now we can be Jewish. But Paul warns against this. Paul says in Romans 2.25, it says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Another verse, Galatians 5, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Here's what Paul says. That law was serving a purpose, but that purpose is not what you think it is. He's saying, listen, if you think being a Christian means now you need to go keep the Jewish ceremonial laws, you've misunderstood what it means to be Christian. But because these Judaizers believed the new covenant existed so you could re-identify with the old covenant, because of that, they were going around and they were telling Gentiles, hey, if you believe in Jesus like us, guess what? You need to be circumcised. I mean, doesn't it get a little hard to do a gospel invitation at that point? Hey, everybody who wants to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you come and give your heart and life to Christ. Right over there in that room, we got our knives ready. Come on. Who's committing to that? Paul was saying, listen, Circumcision had its place, but it was pointing to something. The new covenant didn't exist to take us back. It was something else. You say, wait a second, brother Matt, how would you even know that somebody was circumcised anyway? You're just walking around and you're like, well, he is, he's not, he is, he's not. No, listen, circumcision was a huge community deal. When you were eight days years old, eight days old, there was a circumcision party where people would come and celebrate this new Jew coming into the world. So everybody knows if you're circumcised, because they saw it happen. That's what circumcision parties are. It's not a private thing. It's a public thing to be identified as a Jew. And they know certainly, well, these Gentiles certainly aren't circumcised. So if they're going to be faithful Christians, they need to be circumcised and keep the Jewish law just like us. Because Judaizers taught the new covenant existed to return us to the old. But Paul taught this. Paul taught that the old covenant existed to prepare us for the new covenant. And this is the message of the Bible. Paul taught the old covenant, what God did at the Red Sea, what God did at Sinai, what God did with that ancient people of Jewish people wasn't the main event. It was preparing the world for the main event. You see, the biggest thing for Paul is not being a Jew. It's trusting the Messiah. Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 26 says this, now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. 
But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Hebrews 8.13 says this, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. What is Paul saying? The new covenant didn't come to take you back to the old traditions. The new covenant came because that's always what the old traditions have always been about. It was all looking forward to Jesus. Jesus is not here to take us back to Moses. Moses came that we might eventually get Jesus. This is what he is explaining. <coughs> so, Paul, principle two, was fully persuaded that his gospel was true. That this gospel was true and was not looking for confirmation from the apostles. He was looking for cooperation. Let's look back in verse 1 and 2. It says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. Thank you, Pastor. With Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. This is how I know that Paul was a Southern Baptist. He goes and he says, may I speak to the committee privately? And then before he speaks to the committee, he says, but who do I really need to talk to? Who's the committee behind the committee? And they say, oh, Peter, James, and John. Being a Baptist is a beautiful thing, by the way. I wouldn't have it any other way. But Paul goes and says, I need to speak with the committee. I need to find out if I've run in vain. Now, I want you to understand. Remember, Paul believed he received his gospel straight from Jesus. He is not, because remember the accusation we talked about a few weeks ago, is Paul is just running his own game here. Because Peter and James... In Jerusalem, these brothers, these Judaizers, had been sent out from them, supposedly, and were saying, Paul's preaching a false gospel. What does Paul do in the first chapter? He defends and says, no, I got my gospel straight from Jesus' mouth. I met him on the road to Damascus, and he gave me his gospel by revelation. So Paul going to Jerusalem here, you don't need to think for a minute that Paul is not going to sit down with Peter and James and saying, so do I really understand the gospel here? I just want to make sure, because if not, I want you to correct me. That's not what Paul's doing. And by the way, this takes guts. He sits before Peter and James and says, I just want to make sure we all understand the gospel so that I'm not running in vain. You want to talk about guts of the Apostle Paul? To sit down in front of who are seemingly pillars, Peter, James, and John. John who leaned up against the Lord's breast at the Lord table, Lord's table. Peter who walked on water. Peter who it was said of him, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Here's Paul, a relatively new Christian in that sense, sitting down between 
these brothers who are among the original 12, and he does it respectfully. He doesn't make a spectacle of it. He doesn't say, interrupt business meeting and say, I have some new business. I have something I want to talk about. No, he doesn't do that. He says, listen, I want to talk to you privately, but I just want to make sure we're all in agreement here. Not because he thinks his gospel is false. He just wanted to make sure Everybody was on the same page about understanding what the gospel truly is. That is a man of conviction. Man, I admire that so much. Remember, Paul believed he received his gospel straight from Jesus. Remember, Galatians 1, 12 through 13 says this, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. What does that mean? I didn't learn it from Peter. I didn't learn it from James. For I did not receive it from any man, but I was taught it. What I'm teaching you, Jesus himself told me. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. You say, well, wait a second. A carefully reading New Testament Bible reader would say, doesn't Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15 that he passed on that which was handed down to him? Indeed he did. Let's look at that. Paul is not referencing the gospel as believing in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Paul is referencing that his gospel can be believed by the Gentiles. This is what he's emphasizing. Let me read to you 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. Paul says this. This is likely the oldest section of New Testament scripture we have. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance, notice what it says, what I also received. So Paul received something. What did he receive? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. So Paul did hear the story of Jesus, the old, old story, from the apostles. But that's not what he's referencing in Galatians. The part of the gospel which is just as much a part of the gospel as that right there, is that the gospel can be believed by Gentiles. Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16 says this, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before thee, Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. You see, Paul knew Gentile inclusion into the people of God was always God's intention in his election of Israel. Remember, Paul understands the new covenant exists for one purpose, to fulfill the old covenant. It's not to take us back. The old covenant was always about getting to Jesus so that not just Jews could believe, but that the whole world could believe. Paul will faithfully point this out in his works. I've read this next verse to you so many times. You're probably getting tired of it, but it's so good I can hardly stand it. Let's look in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 through 3. 
What did God promise Abraham? And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The Gentiles, Abraham, you are believing for one purpose. You're following me and being called by me for one purpose, to bless the whole world so that the whole world can be saved. That's what it's always been about. Jesus would be the Israelite because Jesus was a Jew who carried out the mission to the world. I love Isaiah chapter 49 verses 5 through 6. If you're a missionary, this is one of your verses. Isaiah 49, 5 through 6, and it says, Now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb, this is referencing the Messiah, to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and to gather Israel to himself. What's he saying? The Messiah is going to regather Israel, regather the Jews. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength, he says. And it's so good. It's too small a thing. By the way, this is NIV. Too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Isaiah says this, what's the mission of the Messiah? To come and save the whole world. And that's always been the mission. So here is the rebuke of Paul when he confronts the pillars in Jerusalem. He says, listen, I just want to make sure we're believing the same thing here. Because Jesus told me himself that these Gentiles can believe. And by the way, Jesus didn't say anything about them being circumcised or being Jewish. Jesus just said they must believe on his name and be saved. I just want to make sure. And what does he say? They gave them the right hand of fellowship. And he said, Titus, who was with me, who was a Greek, who was uncircumcised, that James and Peter didn't say, well, Titus needs to get circumcised. No. They accepted Titus as a Gentile. So why is Paul talking about it this in the Galatian church? His point is this, if I can go to Jerusalem and they can tell me that you can be a Gentile and be saved, and if Peter and James get this, then who are these brothers who are saying you have to keep these traditions to be saved? I want to close with this. But before we judge the Judaizers too harshly, there's always those who want to major on the minors amongst God's people. And what makes it really difficult is people that want to major on the minors, and it's so disruptive in what God is doing. They're always people of conviction. And it's so easy to admire conviction. An uncompromising man, an uncompromising woman is so easy to admire. I remember watching a video as a kid for Tibetan monks to show their, their loyalty of what they believed to be truth literally would set themselves on fire and kill themselves as a demonstration. That's devotion. That's conviction. I believe that conviction is so wrong. But at the same time, I'm willing to admire someone who's going to stick to their convictions like that, even though it's misguided and that's so wrong. We can admire the conviction of the Judaizers and still call them wrong. Here's what I want to say. Judaizers are right to note that what God has done in the past matters. Judaizers are right to note that what God has done in the past matters. 
How do we make this message applicable in our time? Friends, it's a mistake for us to live in 2024 and ignore what God has done in the past in His church. This is one of the greatest errors in my estimation facing the church right now. Churches are being cut off from their roots because we're judging the past based on our modern lens. Judaizers are right to respect what God has done in the past. It's okay to have traditions. Folks, we've been here since 1850 as a church. Dr. Hockham preached behind this pulpit in the 1920s. That's how old this piece of wood is. There's traditions. In fact, I told somebody not too long ago, they were asking me if we could do something. I said, well, yeah, maybe. I said, but you just got to be careful starting new things in a First Baptist church. They said, why do you say that? I said, because if we start it, we'll be doing it for the next hundred years. We got to make sure we really want to do it. It's wrong to ignore tradition. It's wrong to ignore the past. We stand on their shoulders and we thank God for them. But the Judaizers were wrong to reject what God is doing in the present because it doesn't look and feel the same as the past. Remember, the important thing that is happening is what the Spirit of God is doing in hearts. Not that church looked just like it does right here in this moment. And then finally is this, is that Judaizers are wrong to believe that their path into the gospel must be everyone's path into the gospel. It was a dear sister, I had the privilege of being her pastor years ago, or as a youth pastor at this church, and she said, Matt, when I came to Christ, I, God saved me from going to the movie theaters and watching movies. And it was an inopportune time to tell her I was watching a movie that night at the theater. But she looked at me and she said, but I don't expect everybody to keep that. That's just what God saved me from. Friends, we each have a story. But the important thing of our story is not where we've come from or what we're saved from. It's that Jesus found us and saved us. And the most important thing happening at First Baptist Church is not that me wearing a suit behind a wooden pulpit in a beautiful sanctuary with beautiful pews in a, a building that's had a foundation that's been here since 1917. It is a beautiful place, and I love it, and I wouldn't have it any other way. But the most important thing happening in this room right now is what God's doing right here. We're not under the old covenant. You know, you can believe and not look like us at all. You can believe and practice church very differently. Friends, if you're going to agree with the Bible and agree with me on Jesus, I'm willing to put up with a lot. That doesn't mean I'm going to change all my traditions. No, I'm setting my ways. I'm a southerner. But you know what? I don't want to be amongst these in Galatia trying to shut down what God was really doing in hearts because it didn't look just the way that I thought it should be. I hope this encourages your heart today.